broadcasting under the night sky from the edge of an undisclosed jungle on the Gulf of Mexico. I'm Christopher Garitano, your voice in the night. For the next hour, allow me to be your guide into the bizarre unknown, the fantastic macabre, and together we'll journey to that borderland between fiction and reality, a place beyond all rational explanation. We are now off to the witch. Bury me in a nameless grave. I came from God, the world to save. I brought them wisdom from above, worship and liberty and love. That was an authentic recording of the madman himself, Alistair Crowley. Crowley had lived not only a life immersed in spiritualism, black magic and incantations, but a wicked existence of the flesh, soul, and mind. As Crowley designed his series of books and methods hoping to harness powers from worlds beyond, there were those who dabbled in his complex magic, wishing they never had, and even countless others who never formed a thought of dipping their proverbial toe into the occult, yet their unfortunate experiences were not unlike what Crowley spent a lifetime trying to achieve. Consider the story of Doris Bither. In 1974, a single mother living in Culver City, California, returned home one ordinary night, only to enter a living nightmare. While she was preparing to relax after tucking her children into bed for the night, an unseen and unknown force attacked her physically and sexually. Those brutal attacks continued until a group of parapsychologists from UCLA, led by Dr. Thelma Moss and a young Dr. Barry Taff, arrived at Doris Beither's home, where they collectively witnessed and documented her phenomena. What was extraordinary was one of the shots we took. Doris is cowering on the bed beneath the lights that were flying around her in a mad, you know, fray, and uh, the arc frames her perfectly. And in this particular shot, what's intriguing, if you look carefully at the arc of light, you see that behind it, walls meet at a 90 degree angle, yet the arc is not bent in accordance with the walls, which means that this light was not projected. It's, fr it's in floating in free space. Tonight, we'll speak with a woman not unlike Doris Beither, as she too has experienced visitations and attacks from similar beings of an undefined realm. Stay tuned and I'll return after this commercial break. After these messages, we'll be right back. <laughs> hey, wake up! Wake up, everybody! It's a gorgeous day! Gorgeous day! Come here! 20th Century Fox presents The Story of Carla Moran. <gasps> the most extraordinary case in the history of psychic research. Everything broke loose and went crazy, and everything was shaking. The bed was shaking, and the walls were shaking. And like, a, like an earthquake. No, it wasn't like an earthquake. It was much stronger than any earthquake. Oh, wait a minute. I, I, honey, I don't really understand this. I, you were attacked. Or, or you weren't. It happened. I was raped. You were raped by whom? I don't know. There was no one there. A team of experts will investigate her life. Why does he attack you, Carla? <laughs> Not anyone else. Why is she going to such lengths to support this delusion? And they will find more than evidence. 
they will find. The Entity. Welcome back to Off to the Witch. I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and tonight's guest claims to have been visited by unwelcomed spirits and entities throughout her life. In many cases, her experiences were not only unpleasant, but detrimental. Her name is N.K. Kronda, and I think it's best to allow her to tell her own tale. So here's my interview with N.K. Kronda. I grew up in Southern California, close to the Mexican border, and I lived in a state of deep poverty. One of my biggest memories is remembering that the only reason we got to talk on the phone sometimes is because we could contact other CB truckers on the radio just in case we needed help or something. What was your very first uh, experience in the occult or the unknown? The very first thing I can remember or the things that people tell me, because it starts pretty young. So tell me about that. Was it ghost stories in the family? No, I was an extremely sensitive child. I could tell when people were coming home, and this is before cell phones, before pagers, not like we could afford them anyway. I, I knew when people were coming home, you could put me in a car and I knew exactly where we were going. And I was an extremely young kid and, uh, I also had prophetic dreams, and I don't remember any of this. I've blacked out most of my early childhood, um, but recounts some other family members tell me that it was it was pretty abusive and bad. So there's no really, there's not a huge big reason for me to want to remember it at this point. So simultaneously, you're experiencing some tumultuous elements of your family life. Oh yeah. Yeah, it was a deeply traumatic environment at a very sensitive age when all the neurons in my brain were alive and fired up. And that's when your brain starts, oh, we're, we're not using this part enough, so we'll turn this one down. So it was a key part of my brain development and uh, just a, a horrible home environment as well. And it really just kind of put gasoline on the fire. So, so the home environment was uncomfortable, to say the least. And at that same time, were you having any kind of paranormal experience, otherworldly experience? Well, when you're poor and you live in a two-room house, one room is always haunted. So <laughs> I uh, I remember there being parts of the house that I hated. Um, I just wouldn't go near corners, especially dark corners. They said that I would stare at them and it creeped them out. Can you elaborate a little further on that? What do you mean by being afraid of the dark corners in a room? I wouldn't want to be near them. I wouldn't want to be in a room. It would make me want to run across the room or through the room faster if there was a dark corner. And when I say dark corner, I mean that it's it just appeared to me like a corner that just swallowed all light, not just a dark shadow. So I'm going to get into at the time what you thought that was, and then as an adult, what you feel it was. What did you think that was all about at the time? <sighs> I was two or three, so I don't imagine I had any cognizant understanding of what it was. I was just entranced by it, or I was terrified of it. 
So what you're saying is you had a sensitivity and particularly parts of a room. And I think I had a similar experience when I was a kid. There were parts of the house that I was terrified of, and I wasn't sure why. And so perhaps this is something similar that a lot of children feel. And, and, and even further, perhaps it's a sensitivity to some kind of amorphous, you know, cosmic energy. What do you believe that was now looking back in hindsight as an adult? Looking back in hindsight as an adult, it terrifies me, um, especially the way that uh, the people have described it to me, that I would just start staring at these corners and almost become in a state of catatonia. And it was it was a lot like the little girl in Exorcist where she reaches out to touch the static. Um, that's usually a, a dark entity, and it's trying to get the kid closer so that it can suck energy away from them or suck life away from them. Um, I've seen some pretty pretty dark cases where they say the corners talk to them and they want them to bite the electrical cords. When you were a young girl, did you ever actually see an apparition or a ghost or something like that? I think that I did a lot of the time, but it isn't something that I could have brought up to my parents, so I'd never said anything about it. Can you describe from your perspective what you saw when you were a kid? I could always tell the flavor of a house, and that's a strange way to describe it, but it's really the only way I can, is I could walk past a house or into a house and immediately know this is a safe place to be. It's not a safe place to be. Stay away from the dad. Stay away from the garage. Don't go anywhere near these doors. And I I thought that it would, I attributed it to hypervigilance, but um, I was just this really super aware kid. Like I was a little satellite dish and I had no idea what to do with it. From a child's perspective, I think often they reflect on movies and things they're ingesting in terms of culture and entertainment. What, what were you watching as a kid? What were you listening to? So we didn't have much money. Um, it was pretty much whatever came through the antenna. But I do remember this movie that my mother had taped on Betamax. Yeah, I'm showing my age. That's fine. Um, and it was called Flight of the Navigator. And it's it's kind of a campy B-80s movie about this kid that goes on an alien spaceship and he becomes the navigator. And I thought it was hilarious and I could watch it five times in a row if you would let me. As kids often do, there's so much repetition. I watched movies over and over again. Um, so Flight of the Navigator must have had a big influence on your imagination. And of course, I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest that the things you were experiencing in the home were simply your imagination. But did you, as a child, did you, what was it that made you feel that this was something profound in comparison to the, the things you felt when you were watching a movie like Flight of the Navigator? Something very different than that. It wasn't cinema. It was something else. There's a major difference between a kid experiencing cinema and having daydreams and just something very profoundly real even though it might not be of this dimension or of this earth, how did you register that you were really having a true experience as a kid in comparison to maybe just an overactive imagination? I could always escape and get outside and no one could ever figure out how. And it, it's nothing that I can remember. I 
probably like Pixel, the cat that can walk through walls. I don't know. It's it's sort of like Eleven's upside down. I don't really have daydreams. It's either I'm here or I'm not. So was it when you got into your preteens or, you know, your adolescence when you decided to read about the occult and things that maybe you could relate those experiences to in literature or in other people's experiences? Did you get into different books on the occult, on magic at, at an early age? No, not really. That wouldn't have been allowed. Um, my mother would have thought that it was evil. Uh, I was extremely censored on what I was allowed to watch on TV and what I was allowed to do or where I was allowed to go or who I was allowed to speak to. So my only friend and my only kind of gateway out of there was books. I read voraciously. I read multiple grades above my reading level. Um, I still write and read at a doctorate level, um, even though I don't have a doctorate. So I saved some money there. Anyway. Well, what were some of the books that you read at that age? Oh, man. When I was eight or nine, I was reading Hemingway. I was reading T.S. Eliot. I was reading uh, Slaughterhouse-Five. Um, I devoured the entire Harry Potter series in about five or six days. I just read everything I could. And my mom always had Stephen King novels. She was she was in their monthly book club or whatever it was back then. But I think that I've read almost every single one. Well, Stephen King's the epitome of modern horror. Uh, so you were exposed to that. And that's a variety of hauntings and creatures from other worlds and aliens and everything you can think of. It's the greatest collection. I wonder who he followed around because he got a lot of stuff right. You know, I see science fiction writers and writers of horror as modern day prophets. So they're they're channeling things like most of us do. But oh yeah, then, there's tons of books. Right, and you can always challenge that fiction and say, well, he just has an amazing imagination. We don't really know what an imagination truly is, like we don't know what dreams are completely. But then there's these experiences. I've had them, okay? And you've had plenty. You've had them all your life. Plenty. <laughs> yeah. You know, to the point where I think the only therapy that you have is that you now work with people that have them. So you've got to take me back. Was this happening every day? You were seeing and hearing things every day? When you're in a constant state of chaos, chaos becomes your new normal. So you it, it was like having a vacuum on in the background. Um, there really was no catalyst. So if I look at my work and I think about where it's at, um, I can probably pin it around the time of puberty because of hormones. And then um, probably when I was right around 18, because I was very in a very, again, tumultuous living situation. And then I, I really didn't pick it back up again or think about it until my my later 20s. So you, you put it away for a while and, and the experiences stopped? Yeah, because when you're constantly miserable and being tormented, you don't want to be a hypersensitive person. You don't want to have any sort of openness about you. So I just literally turned myself off. So there have been movies about these things. Some of them are a little more uh, hyper-realistic than others, and then some are pretty true to the to what people and witnesses and the, 
the experiencers had said what the, you know, the, their experiences were like, uh, the entity, you know, it's pretty close according to the people that, that were there that I've spoken to. Um, but in your case, there must have been, if I were to say right now, shuttle to a memory of the most profound experience, let's say between your teens and your mid twenties, what was it? Can you explain it to me in detail? Yeah, I would say that it was at a national park, Ellis, I believe, but I'd rather not say the name of the national park. I don't want people to go there. Okay. You don't have to say what park it was, but if you can tell me about the experience. Yeah, I went ahead and drove out of town because I had gone completely stir crazy. Um, I didn't have enough money for a hotel or anything, and I just wanted to be out. I didn't care that it was 30 degrees in my car. I was I was getting out as fast as I could. So I went to one of my favorite state-run parks. And it was a it was a day that was quiet. There weren't that many campers there, and I had set up my uh, privacy blankets and everything in my van. And I was going to just go ahead and crash in my van for the night in the parking lot of a particular trail that I loved. And I was sitting there, and everything went fine the first night. And these woods just have a a feeling to them that I knew that this is not a place that you go night hiking. It's it's not a it's not a location that we ever want to research. It's it's a place where I'm welcome during the day, but at night I need to stay where human beings are meant to stay. And I went hiking all throughout the day. I went all over the park. It's overrun with a lot of granite, which they say is uh, something that holds a lot of energy. There's a lot of running water there. It's a deeply wooded area, and I was just extremely distressed all day, and I couldn't get the particular problem off my mind. So I was just chewing on it and chewing on it and trying to move my body and then kind of have my subconscious work through it somehow. It ended up being a very frustrating, unproductive day. And I ended up back in my car. I had gone to town for groceries. And this was Sunday night by then. So there's no other cars in the parking lot. There's nobody camping. There's no kids that are doing night hikes. It's just me. And there are absolutely no lights near me at all. I'm not near any sort of um, other campers. I, I had essentially isolated myself within about a quarter mile of all other people without realizing it, which I'm never going to do again. And uh, I heard someone start screaming. And in horror, like you and I know, there's a difference between someone screaming because they're startled by something And there's a difference between what we like to call a blood-curdling scream. And it's much worse than people imagine, and it's much worse than we can capture in the movies. And it's just a woman screaming with every inch of her stomach and her diaphragm and her throat because she thinks she's going to die. So someone started screaming, help me. And I had a pistol with me. And I immediately shot up because what the hell was that? Um, I couldn't get a good look at anything. It was starting to get very dark. I didn't have a flashlight. I wasn't wearing my glasses. I was seriously just ready to go to bed. So I opened the door and I stepped out of the van with my pistol. And I was trying to figure out where the noise was coming from. And I'm in a serious dilemma here of fight or flight is that 
I don't know if I should run in after her. I don't know if I should not run in. There's no service on my cell phone. I'm not wearing any shoes. What am I going to do if I find her? And then again, she starts screaming even louder. And I'm like, is it a bobcat? Is it some kids messing around? And the very specific words, stop and help me came out. And I'm like, okay, that's not, that's not a bobcat. That's not what they sound like. And just this increasing amount of dread. And I knew that I couldn't run in after her. And I heard that voice just getting farther and farther away, like they were dragging her or they were carrying her. So the only thing that I could think of to do was say, you know what, I'm going to be as loud as possible. I, I hope to God that a ranger would hear me. I shot a shot in the air. I heard her still screaming and I shot two or three more shots in the air from my nine millimeter. And um, I stopped and for whatever reason, I don't know, I looked to my left and about 40, 50 yards away is the mouth of the trail. And the only reason I can see it is because there's very, very light colored sand against the darkness. And there's something fucking standing there. (laughs) And we stare at each other for a very long minute and it rushes me fast. And I don't, I don't know how my van door got closed. I don't know if it was closed. I got in my car. I got the hell out of there. I drove to a ranger station and I just sat in my car and I was shaking. I couldn't move. I couldn't get out. And a ranger pulled up next to me and he said, is there anything wrong? Can I help you? And I essentially told him what happened, that I heard a woman screaming down at this parking lot of this particular trail, which is a pretty specific place for them to go look. And he just said, okay, in the most cavalier tone, didn't didn't ask me any further questions and just drove away into the night. And I decided to hell with this. And I left the park and I didn't stop driving until I left the immediate area. I called a friend and they uh, I talked to them today. They verified that I wasn't in a state of mania. I wasn't in a state of shock. I was calm. I was relating all of the details that my story didn't change and they didn't think that I had any type of mental lapse. It's just something terrifying that I saw in the woods. And after I had gone through the research community about it and talked to my friends, the most terrifying part is that we discovered it was most likely a lure and that it wasn't a woman really screaming at all. Someone just wanted me to walk into those woods. Someone. Or something. Is there is there anything, any other stories around that particular area, looking back in hindsight, that you could say, okay, other people have had experiences there, there were murders there, anything like that? It's an area that's really deeply soaked in um, Texas history with them fighting over territory with the Native populations. So what do you believe you encountered that night? That was something that was trying to lure me out, whatever was screaming. What I thought was interesting is that if you actually split my perspectives, the thing that appeared could be completely different because correlation doesn't mean causation. That thing got me to leave the area, whereas the other thing was trying to draw me closer into the area and farther and farther away from the safety of my car. And if I had stayed any longer, I would have kept shooting, which means that I would have just lost all of my bullets. Um, I don't know. Do you think it was a Bonnie and Clyde murder duo, male and female? Or do you think this is something beyond our natural realm? I think that there are things in the woods that you don't mess with. 
and that they get hungry. And when opportunity comes, it comes. Fortunately for me, I think I that the land knows me well enough that I'm not there to hurt anything, that I'm one of the good ones, that I try to help people, that it manifested something to get me out of the area of you can't save her, idiot, go, run, shoo, go, leave. But was there a her? Was there anything there? And why did the um, park ranger just kind of brush it off? I don't want to say it was a shadow figure because it wasn't. And I can't describe it any more accurately than that is that it was a very human shaped thing, but it moved much faster than a human being. And it came right towards me and made sure that I knew it was coming right towards me, which doesn't make any sense either for a predator. You know, you want to surprise your game, especially if you're working as a team. So why alert me to your presence and get me back in the car? So I think something was trying to get me out there to either hurt me or get me into a better place where it could do whatever it wanted. And something did the best it could to say, get out of here now. I've studied some things in the past, as you know, uh, in one of my television shows uh, about missing people in national parks. And it's such an interesting thing. And obviously, um, I believe it's David Pilatus had written you know, umpteenth books on the subject and many other people have as well. And there's certainly something strange going on in the woods in, you know, many, many acres of national forest. Uh, people go missing all the time. The accounts are baffling to say the least. They truly are. I study them. I actually went to Tennessee on location to uh, study a David Paulitis case study. It was fun. So, do you connect these missing cases with something out of our world, out of the ordinary or supernatural? Some of them I do. Some of them I don't. They're much more terrifying than anything I could imagine. You know, I've talked to you before and you've, you've mentioned other things that have happened in the woods. And I, you know, most people that have had an experience like you have, what you just explained, would probably not go back again unless it's with a group, uh, and you went alone, did you ever return to a large, you know, a large national forest or a place with many acres like that alone after? Yes, several times. Okay, so what compelled you to go back to something like that, knowing that, you know, it's like the ocean, anything can get you or something, you know, I mean, like, it doesn't even have to be something from another dimension. It can be an animal that you can't handle. Correct. And I don't suggest just throwing on a backpack and waltzing into the woods. No, I've, uh, I've had some pretty extensive training and a lot of practice. So I do have a survival kit with me that I've made myself. I do have provisions. I do have water. I have um, check-ins with people that have my geographical location because I've read those missing 411 books. And they know that if I don't make my check-in by this certain time, they wait approximately 30 minutes and then they send out the search party like they have the sheriff's direct line. I make sure that they always do. But you're right. If something grabs me, it grabs me. But in reality, I've, I've done all I can to make sure that I'm as prepared as I can. But I still keep looking. There are still people out here that are seeing these things and people out here that are terrified of these things. And I'm one of those people that keeps their stories and occasionally wanders into the woods myself. And so, you know, I've had conversations with you previous to this interview, and you talked about other things happening 
in the forest. Can you explain another story? Can you tell me another story about a, a, a second experience? Another time, um, I was actually not alone. I was with family and we were camping at another state-run park, uh, very kid-friendly, very scenic, very beautiful. Um, and we were hiking that day and there's these huge granite formations there and there's strip mining and there's just all of this energy and this place has a lore about it. There's books about it. It's been blessed. Um, they say that a, an Indian princess died there. Um, there were actual battles between Native Americans and other U.S. soldiers there. Um, it's an extremely active area, but it's also supposed to be a very positive area, sort of like a place where you can come and enjoy the scenery and convalesce and feel better. It's just one of those peaceful places. So we we hiked around all day and I had ended up putting up the tent and everything. And I had my daughter asleep and her father was in the middle and I was on the very end. And our tent had this really cool, it was kind of like a, a walk-in porch sort of, but it was made out of that mosquito material. So we could keep the, the tarp open and we could get the airflow, but you know there was still that part of it that was closed. And I remember having a hard time falling asleep and finally falling asleep and shooting up for no reason. I thought that my daughter had woken up. She was fast asleep. Her father was fast asleep. And I looked up and there was this thing that was crouched outside my tent. And I could hear it unzipping my tent just very slowly and very deliberately. Like it didn't even care if I was there. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm noticing, okay, there's there's no discernible legs. There's nothing I can see here. And when it raised its head, it had these antlers and it had the bone face of a deer covering whatever it was. And there was just this part of me was like, oh no, that thing is coming in here. And I wanted to move and I wanted to scream. I wanted to fall off the bed. I wanted to do anything to, to like please wake up and protect me, do your job, you know? <laughs> and I couldn't, I was just completely and utterly paralyzed. And that's not my standard fight or flight response. So whatever it was, didn't want me to move. And I remember blacking out. And the next day um, I was, I was pretty ready to go. I was over it. I was done. I didn't know what I had saw last night. And I wasn't sure if it was a dream or anything like that. And um, much later on, I ended up seeing this entity again and it being tied to the person that I had brought to this park because of their negativity. It knew what they were, but I didn't. And it was like it fed on them. It was like this almost like a tick symbiotic relationship of the more negative they were and the more hate they put out in the world and the more that they tormented me and tried to make me miserable, like the more this thing was eating. And he didn't seem to see it, but I could, and my daughter could, and it was terrifying. And I found out later, because I, I researched the hell out of this. I was like, this is not a one to go. This is not a skinwalker. It doesn't match up with any of those corresponding things. You know, I was super OCD honors good about it. I was like, there has to be someone that talks about this. And I came across this very rare thing. And it was uh, a shaman that actually wrote a couple of things down, which is a traditional practice that most shamans don't do. Everything is passed down orally, you know, through talking or training or whatever. And he had written down that when 
you found a poached deer, basically a deer that had just been stripped of its antlers. They didn't take any of the meat. They didn't take the hide. It's a very dishonorable kill. You're literally murdering the king of the forest and taking his crown. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. And it said that the only way to get rid of the entity that you created by ripping away the the keep forest crown. I'm sorry, I'm trying not to cry. It's so scary. <laughs> okay, take your time. Um, you are supposed to take the skull of the animal, bury it with some antlers, and it would actually become a sort of guardian. You were giving the king of the forest back its crown. It could let go of all of that negative energy of such a horrible, violent, wrongful death. And I it's, and this is just to be clear. This is derived from Native American yeah, folklore. Yeah, this was a. You know what particular tribe this was or region? Um, Central Texas tribes. Okay. And uh, yeah, not only it was it was so bizarre to come across because it's the only thing that I've ever come across that makes me think that this was some type of guardian, which makes sense. It would keep the negative people away from a sacred, positive place. seen these apparitions and these beings throughout human history. This isn't anything new. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that it is that some people see them still and others do not? Do you think it's all of um, technology just kind of distracting people from the spiritual realm? Uh, is there some other reason, you know, because like 
throughout human history, these things have been written about, these experiences have been talked about and not just, you know, from people that needed us, you know, to come back to earth or people that had hallucinations. I mean, you know, there were prominent people throughout history that have seen things and experienced things like this. Teddy Roosevelt was a big, big footer. I know, I know a lot about it. Well, he, he trusted in a story that was told to him. It was so profoundly told that it really impressed him to write it into his memoirs. Yeah. But in, in the case of people that still experience these things because they are so deeply embedded in archaic folklore, to experience it now, uh, and you're not alone, obviously, because you talk to a lot of people that have experienced a variety of things like this. But why is it that you think that, or that you might think that a good deal of people are not in touch with those realms at all? Disassociation is a powerful tool, extremely powerful. And there's some ways where people in this world I've seen never grow up. They never look at the world around them. They never, they're never in the present moment. Um, I actually go back to my work when I think about this and I, I go back to the trauma connection because this theory makes the most sense to me. And I've talked with it overtly with other uh, psychiatrists and psychologists that I thought that there was a trauma connection and your brain is essentially just all of these wires and all of this electricity, just like in the matrix, there's our sci-fi writers. And, uh, when you experience trauma, your neurons literally rearrange themselves to avoid that memory and to avoid that dark thing that traumatized you. So if your brain is getting literally rewired by something that's traumatizing or scary or something that even you perceive to be scary, if it, even if it's not, you're rewiring your brain. I would, I would like to think that you would see the world differently. Not all people do. But in most of my work, when I talk to an experiencer and it comes down to, hey, have you ever had any like profound traumatic experiences in your life? Um, do you think that you've ever experienced any hardship? I find out that most often that they have, they've had a deeply traumatic experience. They've had a near-death experience. They've seen something or it occurred near puberty. So I really like that trauma connection. I'm not sure exactly what part of the brain it's activating. I don't know if it's junk DNA. And to be fair, neither does really anyone else because there's so much of the brain that we don't understand and haven't studied. Sure. Speaking to that, the psychiatric community, some doctors believe that after a horrible molestation or physical or sexual abuse, in some cases that people would replace their father or brother or whoever did this horrible thing with an alien or a ghost or a demon. How, how do you feel about that? It reminds me of The Fourth Kind. Um, it's a film. I, I had, I, I know what that is called. It's called like displaced trauma or something. There's a difference. I talk to a lot of people. I talk to a lot of people that sometimes just have a lot of problems. They don't have to be special or any kind of experiencer to have that. It's there's this energy and there's this look in their eyes. And in all reality, the people that I talk to and the experiencers that I talk to, no one would want this. No one would pay for this. No one would try to seek attention for it. Most of the time, 
despite their incredible resiliency and their want to help people, they're, they have a lot of survivor's guilt. They don't understand why this thing happened and why they, they're forced to endure and keep suffering, which is, that's why that's my, uh, my thing that I put on everything, even my business cards is honor yourself because you survived. Not because, not because you did anything, but just because you got yourself through that situation so that the you that's here today could be here. I, I wonder if perhaps going forward now in the future, if the psychiatric community would reevaluate their examination because of things like disclosure of aliens flying around us by the governments, uh, very prominent people having experiences with apparitions, you would think at some point in the future, those doctors would re-examine their hypothesis. Yes. They would consider perhaps the person is telling the truth and it, we wouldn't just lean immediately towards hallucination. And because I'm relentless, I went ahead and I hunted down a psychiatric resident at Russ Hospital in Chicago and I made him talk to me. And what did he say? He was actually a believer and he, he just couldn't understand why experiencers wouldn't come forward and why they wouldn't tell their psychiatric staff about the things that they were seeing. And he, he couldn't wrap his mind around it. And we ended up talking about it for a very long time. And we came to the conclusion that the stigma, it was going away. And then when COVID hit, any type of treatment that wasn't black and white approved by the medical board, don't even bring it up, don't discuss it. Because too many people went crazy with COVID and trying all of these terrible home remedies and whatnot. I don't even want to start. But they said that it was, even as students, you know, the things that are supposed to be learning and asking questions and being new and being different and revitalizing this field, they've they just really put a muzzle on them and worked them until they were exhausted. No one really cared. And I found it kind of ironic that the doctor wanted his patients to come forward, but I'm sworn and signed to never, ever, ever say his name ever. Understood. Well, having those experiences yourself, at what point did you decide to start working with other people that have had experiences from beyond? And also, what's the reasoning behind it? Why do you want to do it? It won't leave me alone. I wish that this was something that I could walk away from, but it's not. I know that you said that a lot of experiencers, um, I talked to a lot of them, but you and I had done some filming in Texas a few years ago. And I remember while I was waiting for the filming to get started, an experience and I were just standing at a, a very nice restaurant, you know, enjoying some drinks and just waiting until the, the crew got set up. And this woman came over to me and she just immediately opened up about this one time where she was little and she was supposed to be doing her homework and she kept going over to fiddle with the radio. And she said her grandmother's spirit kept turning it off because she wanted her to do her homework. And this is one of those heavy turn dial machines that aren't, they're not digital. You have to physically make that click to turn it off. So she was convinced up and down that it was her grandma. And it was very surreal to me because I had not said a word about why I was there. You had not approached me. I am not famous. I'm like, why, why, why do you know that you can talk to me? And it happens all the time. They just won't leave me alone. So do you feel a kinship with particularly people who may be accused of being crazy and 
perhaps you were accused of being crazy, yet you know and believe in your heart that these experiences are real and not common to our our collective reality, but they're real. Oh, and it doesn't matter about belief. <laughs> no way. It doesn't matter at all about belief. It's inconsequential. Um, well, in other words, you truly believe your experiences are real. How do you vet people that come to you or that you run into that perhaps they might actually be hallucinations? Like, how do you know the difference? I did it because I actually vetted myself. Um, I was such a victim of severe gaslighting that I went to several different psychiatrists and underwent several formal evaluations to see if I was. I wanted to know. I wanted to know if I was a narcissist. I wanted to know if I did have bipolar disorder. Um, was I seeing things? Was I schizophrenic? I got MRIs taken of my brain. And most of the time, I would have to fight them. They wouldn't want to test me. They said, just from talking to you for the last 10 minutes, you, you're not any of those things. And I would say, I don't care. Give me the evaluations. And um, after forcing myself through all of that, you know, you can kind of have that tiny fire inside you of like, okay, you've accessed as many parts of the scientific community as you have to make sure that you are sane. So if I'm sane and I'm still seeing these things and other people are still seeing these things, it's something that I want to keep track of. It's something that I want to help people move through and understand that this is something that you don't necessarily have to deal with it. It can be gotten rid of. It can be dealt with. And sometimes you can make your peace with it. I don't want them to be as alone as they feel they are. So then what is the goal of meeting with them? Is there an end game or a, um, a task that needs to be accomplished? Is it to eliminate? Is it to eliminate the experiences? Is it to teach the experiencer to block them out? Or at least, I don't know, make them feel like they're not alone? All of the above? It would depend on what the experiencer wants. For me, I just wanted to write them some type of survival guide is that there's only one of me. I'm limited in my work and my time to help people. What if there was this book that I could put out into the world and someone very quietly and without judgment could pick it up and learn what an experiencer was or read about my ghost story or read about a woman screaming in the woods and say, hey, this has, it's happened to me. It sounds familiar. She doesn't sound like she's one of those crazy people or all woo-woo as they like to say, but you know, everyone's going to call you crazy all the time, always. Yeah, well, I think that's going to happen. You know, just to rewinding back to what I said earlier is that I think that's going to happen less and less, especially with, um, you know, a herd mentality uh, and groupthink. When you have the governments of the world saying, no, this stuff's real, then instantaneously you'll have tons of people saying, I guess it's okay for me to believe in this stuff now. And perhaps it'll even happen so much more prominently we live in a very very bizarre time and maybe we're all well, waking up to a lot of things heinlein called it the crazy times yeah well what was he referring to when he wrote that what time his histories of future past it's it's basically just like this it's societies falling apart and uh he called it it's essentially that part of history that he called the crazy times and Eventually, the Mormons end up turning out just fine, but no one's as well prepared as they are. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not. 
Well, where do you go from here? You know, because you're speaking to these people. Do you think it's always been this way? Or is there an overabundance of contact with these other realms? And I want to know what you think these other realms are. Are they of alien origin, other dimension, the other side of, you know, where we go when we die, something else? I mean, what, what do you think all of this is? Oh, I'm so happy to tell you that I don't know, and neither does anyone else. No one can say for sure. What do you think it is? I think it's a little you bit must have thought of about. everything. There's nothing that I have come across that can make me 100% say that's, that there's no way that that thing exists. It's, my consciousness is pretty tired. You know, I, I thought that I saw everything that I could see. And then, you know, of course the universe has to send you that one trick pony and you're like, okay, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. It's really hard. It's just, it's, it's this constant influx of information and excessive information. You know, our brains are like walking into a sports bar with multiple TVs on all the time and you're getting all of this extra information you don't need and you're trying to focus on one thing, whereas you may just hear one TV in the background. It, it affects every aspect of your whole life and whether or not we want to run from it or we want to give it a fancy title or we want to sensationalize it, it's still there. It perseveres. So when our bodies die, do you believe there is a place where our, essentially our soul goes to? I've interacted with a lot of souls and energies, but I'm not sure essentially where they go. But you believe we go on after physical death? Yes. As a shaman, I'm formally trained to help with that transition. Do you believe that there are intelligent extraterrestrial beings out there with technology that have been in contact with humans on Earth one way or another? Probably. I would say you're not certain of that. I'm not certain. What do you think these these ships are that have been visiting us all these years? Tourists. Tourists. I, well, then you, that's a yes. <laughs> I think that they're just tourists. I mean, so much of what I deal with seems to be on like an interdimensional level of things that walk out of the woods or walk out of walls or walk out of corners that. When my colleagues are up looking at the sky, I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that's pretty big up there, too. I don't know. Have you ever seen a, a flying saucer? <laughs> have you ever seen a UFO? I have seen a UFO, but you're not going to like the definition. It's an unidentified flying object. I think uh, that that could literally be anything as well. I mean, UAP is the sexier word for it now, unidentified aerial phenomena. And I, I, my answer is yes. An honest yes is that I have seen UAP. I have seen lights in the sky. I have been a witness to the Marfa lights several times and that they are interactive. I love going there. So in other words, you enjoy the paranormal and the occult as well. So it's not this horrible thing for you. I mean, maybe in some cases, but you, it's an interest of yours as, as is the occult, I believe too, right? Like magic and witchcraft. I'm always interested in things that are just a little bit beyond my reach. And uh, I think that that's why we're both horror fans as well. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, this episode's about you, though. They hear about me in the opening, and they hear about me. All of this is interest of mine. They've heard my stories of my experience of hearing the voices and 
seeing an apparition and all that stuff. I talk about it all the time. Yeah. I mean, I'm a public speaker. I'm an author among other things, but like you try telling people that you're a horror model and that you got stuck to the pavement with two gallons of fake blood and they don't really know how to talk to you anymore. <laughs> I want to, I want to first know how do you work with your experiencers? So you've decided to work with people who have had similar experiences to yourself. Run me through a session. How do you work with them? So instead of approaching them, as most of my colleagues in my field do, I, I'm very, very much a peer-to-peer person. Is that We're both experiencers. We're both here at preferably a small coffee shop or their home or somewhere they're comfortable. And I'm the person that's there to help just encourage them to talk and you know ask very gentle, non-leading questions about what they want to tell me and what they want to preserve. It's only after we formally close that preservation and I stop writing anything down, I say, okay, now do you have any questions? And then they can go ahead and open up about more things that maybe they were afraid about. Um, there was a woman that told me she had tried to commit suicide four times. And she had she had tried in ways that were almost certainly lethal. Like she tried to drive in front of a train going 70 miles an hour. And she said that she woke up at home and her car was in the garage. And that just struck me so hard is that the the biggest stumbling block of the, my book that I'm trying to write is that it's not the stigma. It's just that why do I want to write a survival guide for these people that have suffered so much when I struggle every day with the strength of wanting to get up and wanting to keep going and wanting to be alive? I just don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to I don't want to spoon and feed someone that I don't even believe in. And I, a lot of people have told me that I have imposter syndrome and I'm being ridiculous, but it's a genuine fear. Your fear, just to clarify, is is that maybe you're writing or examining people that aren't telling you the truth? No, my fear is more of, of myself, of being hypocritical, of telling people to have hope and to keep going and to survive, and myself being so completely and utterly tired and drained and not wanting to survive and saying, you know what, phenomena, if today's the day, then take me. I, I won't even give you a hard time about it. I'm just going to go for a walk. Well, you're supposed to be helping people. You can't, you know, be Dr. Kevorkian over here of the paranormal world. That's, that, that's a very difficult and dark place to be as a researcher. And you get there a lot when you work with people like this, because it's, it's such a common theme. So sometimes you have to step away and do other projects. Like right now, I'm writing a graphic novel. Um, I'm really hoping to get some artists interested in it that want to illustrate some chapters. It's called A Woman. And it's just a really fantastic exercise and play with moral ambiguity and good and evil and someone that you don't quite know everything about and just watching the things that they do. And I, I put a lot of my work into it as well. Of course, but what when you're dealing with someone who's had when you're dealing with someone who has had a profound otherworldly experience, what is your technique on making them feel comfortable, making them feel like they're not alone? I don't make them feel anything. I'm just there. And they've told me for whatever reason, they say, Ma'am, you feel like home. You feel like home and I feel like I can breathe and I feel like I can just sit here. So in other words, you're just listening to their stories? 
Yeah, from a very archaeological perspective, I do preservations. I don't put myself into their stories. I'm a story keeper. But do you, do you is there any kind of therapeutic environment that you'll create for them? Um any advice that you leave them with? You know, can you take me you don't have to say their name, but can you run me through a story that an experiencer told you? Uh, an additional one that literally deals with some kind of visitor from another world. And and tell me how you dealt with that in the end. There was a heartbreaking one. And it came from a complete and utter skeptic, which I think why I was so fascinated in it. And it was essentially this person describing to me what the Amityville horror was, but it was real. And... um he had a lot of tech in the home. He was an extremely smart person. So they had, they had cameras, they had motion sensors, they had all this stuff. And to the, to the point that they had paranormal activity that he was seeing it, his son was seeing it, the, the other son was seeing it, the wife was seeing it, other people that were coming into the home to work on the home or babysit were seeing it. And that's usually the type of case that I'll, I'll preserve it and I'll refer them to more uh, formal psychiatric care. But for whatever reason, this one I stuck with because there were children in the home and because it was just so horrifying that this house was trying to either kill them or get them out. And, and pardon me, we, you referred to the Amityville Horror House. Was it particularly that house or a different house? It was a different house in a different state. But as soon as I heard this, I said, like, is, is someone trying to rewrite the Amityville Horror? Because that's exactly what it sounded like. And as soon as I talked to this person, they made it very clear that they were a skeptic, that this stuff had happened to them, and that they wanted nothing to do with it. And they were moving forward with government contracts and that this would be a one-time thing. So I, I shut myself up very quietly and I listened to this person. And they were very direct and they wanted they wanted an answer and they wanted solutions. And I said, the things that you're asking for haven't been developed yet, but I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to leave you alone with this until your family is somehow okay with it. And it, it was a really long and hard road. They just had to move. And as soon as they moved, it's like the house took a great big deep breath and everything just stopped the job offers started rolling in. Um, the house stopped having problems. The cats that had gone insane and were ripping open mice for no reason, that had stopped. Um, another thing that he had told me is that there was a perfect circle of live wriggling maggots on the floor of his kitchen. And he was extremely OCD, cleaned the floors with bleach two or three times a week. And he said there was no vent, there was no trash can, there was no trash. There was nowhere that this thing could have come from. And he had just been in the kitchen five minutes prior and to see a circle of live writhing maggots because your house hates you. When you say the house hates you, what do you think it is that's causing activity like that? And we've heard about stories like this for you know, forever, haunted house stories. And it's been told in, in cinema and, and through literature and, and song and you know, what is it? What, what's, what's making all of this stuff happen? Um, just to throw a theory out there, look up aligning of the spheres. It's that theory that when the planets get into a certain alignment, 
just the world opens up and starts going through all of these changes and transformations. And some people refer to it as the age of the Aquarius. Um, it depends on how deep you want to go, but it's, it's very prevalent. And I hate people say that we, you know, we live in uncertain times. Of course we do. Every day is uncertain, but there's something out there right now that is just making people mean and cagey and scared and just the news spoon feeding them 24 seven. It's, it's not a brave new world out there. It's very scary. Well, they talked about that in Ghostbusters too. Remember the negatively charged slime underneath uh, New York City? Yes, but it did love jazz. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, see, the thing is, in all of that writing, whether it be semi-comical or not, it- No, he was extremely smart, Harold Remus. Oh, uh, of course. If he had enough time and enough money, he could have made every single piece of that equipment real and working. I guarantee it. Just give him enough time and money and he'll do it. Same thing with Dan Aykroyd. Um, Aykroyd is ex- extremely into the paranormal. Yeah, they're incredibly smart. And they were talking about this stuff. They also talked about uh, the metal that's in the Statue of Liberty that's extremely reactive to uh, spiritual energies as well. I don't sure. remember well, what it is. Well, that comes from something. There are, there are a, a variety of ghost stories or entities that thrive off of negativity. So for instance, you know, you've heard these tales, there was a, there's a family in a house, they get to the house, they start fighting a lot. And then as the fighting increases, the, the energy increases in the house. And what I've always believed were, and a lot of other people that, and this goes way back to like HP Lovecraft and way back that there are these amorphous cosmic energies, like what you were just explaining that thrive off of, and some of them thrive off of negativity. And then that could manifest somehow in some other form. And so, in other words, do you believe that the mystical and all of this incredible fiction and the occult and magic and these other worlds are actually all true? The supernatural is real. Do you believe that? All of my work and most of my life experiences have led me to believe that most of the supernatural is plausible. I can't for sure say that it's real or not because it may not exist in what we call real. Do you think at any point in our existence will we have more answers perhaps after we die? You know, our physical bodies die. I don't know. I've helped several crossover And most recently, a little girl that was living next door to me, she would always sit up in the window and cry. And I eventually figured out that she was waiting for someone to come home that was never coming home. And so when you say you helped a crossover, are you referring to a living person crossover to the other side or a spirit that's trapped somewhere move on? Yeah, I think that she was a spirit. I think that she had been dead for a while, but she wasn't quite sure what had happened to this specific person. And that's that that can be a big factor for not moving on either. And the energy of the house can encourage and can encourage that. It can dampen it. Um, but you're right. You can walk into these places across these thresholds and you can be in a completely different world, you know, just because there's one mom that's so loving and empathetic, that house can become a safe a safe haven for kids that don't even know why. 
children seem to see a lot of these things more so than adults. Why do you think that is? Because they have not yet been brainwashed by adulting yet. They they go to school and they go to church and that starts to kind of erode away at your sense of fantasy. But kids are very resilient and they're smart. And you may tell them that it's not real, it's all in your head, go to sleep. Or you tell them that it's evil and then it just becomes ever more seductive that you have to chase that phenomena that keeps interacting with you. And the more that you chase it, the more that it chases you. Well, how do you feel as if, you know, when you finish your, your book and that gets out there, don't you think there's going to be a deluge of people wanting to speak to you, feeling that maybe you're the person to speak to, or you're certainly the person to speak to, and they need your help? Will you be prepared for that? Um, I've thought about that before, and I've, I've made my peace with it. I'm hoping that I can put enough information into the book that they can kind of go through these steps on their own and that they're, that it's very laid out. Like it's a process along with testimony and things like that, but there is only one of me. I, I would love more colleagues. I would love more people that are preservationists or storytellers or people that just listen, listen and record and make that available because you have no idea how much it helps. We've already lost so much information because people just won't talk about well, it. Well, you're talking about it now. Is there something that, and, and this, you know, potentially is a rather large audience listening to you? Uh, what do you want to say to them? Because there's people out there that have had these experiences. There's certainly people listening to this show that have had the experiences that you try and, I don't know, see remedy or help heal people who've had these experiences. Uh, so if you could speak to those people, just the audience of people out there, what, what, what would you say to them? To honor yourself because you survived, and that if you don't even want you, and if no one else wants you, I want you to survive. I want the chance to meet you. I want the chance to hear your story. I want the chance to give you hugs and to talk to you and tell you that all of this suffering has been worth it because you're going to help so many people with your testimony. I just need you to come forward so that I can have these tools to help other people. And I know that that's asking a lot, but one story really can tip the scales, Christopher. So you're specializing particularly in very traumatic experiences with yeah. these other worlds. People like Ryan Sprague and other colleagues will refer them to me. It's what I'm known for. What was it, what was the last case that you, or the last person you talked to, and, and, and what were they going through? And again, you don't have to say their name. You can still explain details without revealing who they are. Oh, yeah. It was a what I like to call a regular Tuesday night. I was coaching someone that was um, basically babysitting someone on suicide watch for 24 hours. And their adrenals were so shot that sleep was impossible. So I ended up staying awake with them for several hours, keeping, keeping them sane and awake and answering their questions. And it was a lot. But was this somebody who had a, another worldly yeah. experience? What was their experience? What was their otherworldly experience? This was someone in another country that had 
they lived very close to UFO hotspots and they had seen UFOs and they always had this feeling that they were in a simulation and things that they were interacting with weren't really there. And they were always terrified that they were crazy. So they could have this as sort of an armchair hobby, but he couldn't talk to anyone about it. And how did you deal with it? Once again, I was present. I said, if I can't help you, please just let me be here for you so that you know you're not alone. And that was enough. So perhaps when people are having these experiences, they're so alienated by the people around them or their peers that it just simply helps to have somebody say, I'm listening. I bring the human back into a very human experience. At the end of the day, you're still a human, whether it's an alien or an abduction or the paranormal or demons or anything. That's a lot to deal with. And I'm proud of the people that do it. They are amazingly resilient survivors. I just want them to know that they're not as alone as they think they are. There are a lot of us out there. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate the stories and and all of the information you've given tonight. I ask this of every guest and no answer is wrong. So you can tell me however you feel, but if you're able to on your way out of this lifetime, this physical life, if you're able and you're conscious of it, what would you take with you if you could as you leave this life? Nothing. You would take nothing. No. If it doesn't have a heartbeat, I can replace it. And if it has a heartbeat, I can't get another one. Would you want to take your memories with you? No, actually. I'd really like a sabbatical life. I'd like to be an endangered bird somewhere and just get praised every time I ate food or something. That would be incredible. (laughs) Well, how would you know it would be incredible if you didn't take some memories with you? Because I don't think there's any bird out there that flies and doesn't think this is amazing. I'm flying. Welcome back to Off to the Witch. I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and I want to thank you for joining us tonight, and I invite you to return, as there'll be many further discussions of the unknown, and I'll continue to explore a variety of unexplained phenomena on this show. Next week begins our two-part interview with Stanton LeVay, who has an amazing life story, as he's the grandson of Anton LeVay, the creator of Satanism. I look forward to spending the night again with you all, and until then... Try to enjoy the daylight.